Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. This episode is sponsored by Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. How do they do it? Like us, Girls Can Crate believes that real women make the best heroes. And every month they deliver them to your doorstep. Hi, Katie. Hi, Olivia. Have you ever changed your mind about anything? Uh, (laughs) anything at all? Anything at all. Uh, yes. I've had some pretty, uh, epic mind changes in my life. I actually really like changing my mind. It's one of my favorite things to have to, like, deconstruct everything I thought I knew and start from scratch again. Hey, me too! (laughs) Really? It kind of bothers the people around me sometimes. (laughs) Wait. (laughs) I love changing my mind so much that the number one stated goal on the syllabi for my women's studies classes is that we are all going to learn to be wrong in public. (laughs) Because I think as long as you're committed to always doing it right, you're never going to say anything. You're never going to learn anything. Hmm. And I'm wrong in public several times a day. <laughs> and I learn a lot of new important things by being wrong in public and being corrected in public. Yeah. And I hate it. <laughs> but that's how I learn stuff. Yeah. We have a really weird reaction, in my opinion, to the stories of people changing. That more often we seem to weaponize people who change their mind. We call them flip-floppers. We call them (laughs) flip-floppers. I hope that I don't hold all the same opinions that I held 20 years ago or two years ago or two weeks ago. I want people to change their mind Mm -hmm. when they get new information. Yeah. I mean, I, I get the appeal of the stories of the perfectly morally pure hero who knew from the beginning. Yeah. But so much of that depends on just landing Mm -hmm. in the right spot at the right time. If you happen to be raised by the right people, then you knew from the beginning that this was wrong. Yeah. The more universal human story is we're all flawed humans just stumbling our way toward enlightenment. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's not like this straight, clear-cut way. We're just right. kind of stumbling our way along. So I, I think we really have to start figuring out, as a society, how to celebrate the flip-floppers. Or at mm. least the sincere flip-floppers. Yeah. If, if we're going to continue to stumble forward together toward enlightenment. Yeah. So the woman we're talking about today had one of the most public and most dangerous mind changes that I have ever heard about. Hmm. I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. Though most Americans have never heard of her, 
the woman that we're talking about today is a national hero in Germany. Schools oh. are named after her. Everyone studies her. Streets are named after her. Because this 21-year-old woman was one of the only people to stand up to the Nazi regime and say publicly, this is wrong. Wow. That doesn't sound like it's going to end well. No. <laughs> no. Sorry, okay. we have a sad one All right. today. Get ready. <laughs> her name is Sophie Scholl. And to learn more about her, I talked to Kip Wilson. My name is Kip Wilson, and I'm the author of White Rose, which is a YA historical in verse uh, based on a true story about the White Rose resistance group and about Sophie Scholl. White Rose is a young adult novel written in verse, which means it's written in poetry. The whole thing is poetry, and it's wonderful. And it will be released in one week on April 2nd. I love this book so, so much. And I really encourage our listeners to get a copy for themselves and for any young people in their lives. It's a really profound and moving and extremely well-written book. Wow. I have been a huge fan of Sophie Scholl since I was a teenager, and I couldn't think where I would have heard about her until Kip Wilson said this. I learned about Sophie Scholl and the White Rose in high school German class, which is probably the most common place where most people have heard of her here in the U.S. And I was immediately hooked into her and to her story. This was a girl not much older than I was at the time who stood up to the Nazis. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. You know that this is somebody's very inspiring, somebody who very much believed in her cause. And she has been since then a personal heroine to me. And I'm sure that's where I heard about her, too, that in my high school German classes, she was brought up as a young person that you can look up to who did this amazing thing. Yeah, because it seems like oddly anti-Nazi movements is the stuff of young adult literature. Yeah. I bet because of Anne Frank. I think I so, yeah. Because she was a, such a loud voice. Mm-hmm. So you got Anne Frank, and then we've got Number of the Stars. Yeah. And those seem like the two right. classic narratives of anyone pushing against the Nazi regime. But surely there had to be more. Yeah, that's interesting, because if at that point we're just doing Nazis, yeah, then all of the stand-up-to-the-bad-guys stories are Nazis. Yeah, they were like our classic bad guys right. there for quite a while. And so we have this whole generation now raised on those stories as the archetype of like what standing yeah. up to evil looks like right right yeah exactly maybe with such a classically evil villain right there's the no Nazis. nuance there yeah i think it successfully created a generation it seems like especially you gen xers stand up in the face of evil you know that that childhood yeah. lit successfully shaped your generation Sophie Schall was born during the Weimar Republic, which was the interwar period between World War I and World War II. And that time in Germany was actually not terrible in some ways. In fact, they, I mean, they had a democratic government. There was a lot of freedom at that time. But of course, the economic situation was quite dire. The inflation was 
incredible. You might see photos of people carrying these wheelbarrows full of rice mark to go and buy a loaf of bread sort of thing. I think that's a part of this history that we don't often talk about enough, that the rise of the Third Reich is not a violent military rise. It's yeah. political that Hitler is elected to office. Mm. The, the entry into power is based on promises of prosperity and returning to traditional German values. Yeah. Looking at the historical patterns, in some ways, it's not at all surprising that someone mm. like Hitler was elected because Germany was so devastated after World War One. During the Treaty of Versailles, all of the leaders from the countries involved in World War One meet at Versailles to arrange a peace treaty. And I think we kind of talked about the end of World War One in the Mod mm. Fitch episode. Everybody's just so fatigued from war that they all just declare, okay, it's over. We're going to declare a ceasefire, and then we're going to come together and arrange a peace treaty. We're going to hammer things out. But then once they actually met at Versailles, they didn't allow Germany to be present. Hmm. They rejected the representative of the Weimar Republic, just made them stay outside and said, we will decide, and then we will tell you what's happened. Hmm. Surprise, surprise, what they decided was, <laughs> it's 100% Germany's fault. They have to pay all the war reparations to all the other countries. To me, looking back, it's kind of astounding how harsh they were. You know, they took the best producing industrial areas and gave them to France. They took away all of Germany's colonies and gave them to England and France. They thought, we're just going to crush Germany into the ground so it can never rise again. That was their plan. Right. And Germany was completely and utterly destroyed. So take that cultural context where there was no hope whatsoever because they were in billions of dollars of debt to all the other countries. There's no way forward. There's no hope. And here comes this fiery little dude <laughs> and he's promising a new day and a new dawn. And he explains to them how this came to be and whose fault it is and that he's going to make everything better. Mm. And everybody goes, yes, yes, that's what we want. And of course, at the time, they had no idea who this Adolf Hitler guy was right. and what he was going to turn out to do. Maybe he didn't even know at the beginning. Yeah. There's also this pushback on what is becoming, at least in Berlin and city centers, a very sort of progressive, liberal, modern society that is giving women way more rights and freedom than they've had mm -hmm. before wildly creative new art and music and really yeah. pushing the boundaries. And so when you can appeal to economic recovery and also stopping this change of our society. Yeah, returning the good old days. Yeah, that bringing women back where they belong and mm -hmm. casting artistic freedom as decadence or yeah. things like that, that right. that's a really powerful combination for mm -hmm. people who are deeply traumatized by change at this yeah. point. She uh, was 11 years old when Hitler came to power in 1933. And then she spent the rest of her life under this dictatorship. But the interesting thing is, well, there are many interesting things, of course. But as a, a young teenager and her siblings, they were actually super excited about Hitler and the Nazis. And they were like, this is great. 
looking back, you know, it's, it's easy to say, what were they thinking, you know? And of course, her father particularly was a pacifist, and he was very anti-Hitler from the very beginning, and he was jailed a couple of times for his beliefs. But they loved it because they had no problems, right? They were the normal Aryan children, whatever. They, they didn't have to worry about anything at the time themselves. And what they saw was, oh, we get to go camping, we get to go hiking, we get to sing songs, and all our friends are here. We're not with our parents. Indoctrination of the youth in Germany was systematic and calculated, and he was breeding an army, and they fell for it completely. But something started to didn't sit right. Father, what are these concentration camps about? The, the Führer, he doesn't know about them, does he? They're banning these books, our favorite books. Why can't we read Heinrich Heine anymore? This is terrible. Things started to add up. And then in 1937, a bunch of teenagers all around Germany were arrested. Sophie's brother Hans was arrested at his uh, military training. Also her sister and her brother at home were arrested. It was all over the country. Everybody was being arrested. Having banned books or being part of the, another youth group. The Hitler Youth was the only legal youth group at the time. They became a bit more disillusioned. They heard from a friend of their mother, something strange was going on with children who were in medical institutions. Things added up and added up and added up, and it, it, took, it took a while, but eventually their father's kind of background hum and like Kristallnacht, and then seeing the racial purity laws. They saw all this happening and it just wasn't sitting right. There wasn't like one single thing that said, okay, you know, that's it. But gradually over the years, their, their attitude turned to, oh my gosh, we have to do something about this. This isn't fun and games. This is criminal. And it was really that last step that these things are criminal. These things are morally reprehensible. That's what made them finally commit treason because that's what it was. Standing up under Nazi Germany was treason, and it carried with it the threat of anything from imprisonment, torture, and up to execution. What, what happened to, to Sophie herself is that she had also had to spend a long time before she could get to go to the university, which was her, her dream. She wanted to study, she wanted to learn more. Her family was quite intellectual, and she finally finished all the hoops. She went through everything she had to do to get there, which included an entire year at work service. The boys had to do work service as well, which was basically serving in the military. They had to, Hans had to go to the Western Front in France, and she had to go work in like a work camp. The Third Reich really cut down on women's rights. We've had this very sort of proto-feminist Weimar Republic, where women are more empowered and more educated, and that is all pulled way, way back. And suddenly we go from a really broad program of women's higher education to fewer than 6,000 women enrolled in university under the mm. Nazis out of 80 million people. Right. Because now their role, their deeply respected role on a pedestal is to have lots of good Aryan babies. Exactly. Kinder, Kuche, Kirche. Mm. Children, kitchen, church. Yes. 
And Sophie really wasn't interested in any of those. Well, she was quite religious, actually, but, you know, that wasn't, she wanted much more out of life. So Sophie finally did get a place and was allowed to go. And when she got there, after all these years and all this waiting, the war was going on by then. This was 1942, by the time she finally got to the university. And it was in full swing. And her brothers had been sent to the front. Her friends, her boyfriend was actually a German army officer. And they were all in the midst of battle. Or her, her brother was a medical student, so they weren't actually fighting, but they were right near the front lines at these medical units. She wanted it to stop. And that was their main impetus for the White Rose to, to get going on the resistance. At this point, it wasn't really a, a moral decision, but rather just, we need to stop this war. We're like ruining our country and all of our young people are going to die. That was really startling to me for two reasons. I think because we, we want the story of heroes to start with them addressing the core moral issue that we have decided looking back on history is the thing. Yeah. That we want it to be the Holocaust, but it's yeah. the war. Mm. I hadn't really thought through how much we neglect the horror and stupidity of this war because of the very valid reason of the much more staggering horror of the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. So they start printing leaflets Ooh. in their apartment denouncing Hitler specifically by name and the entire government for these things which they see as crimes and immoral acts. Mm. So it is mostly centered at this point on stop this stupid war. But it does, from the very beginning, call out the complete immorality of this very blatant slaughter of Jewish civilians in Poland that really mm-hmm. deeply upset them. And they're calling these out and saying, these are criminal immoral acts mm. that our government is perpetuating. So actually Sophie probably wasn't initially involved. And I say probably because that's one of those last nagging questions. There are just some things that nobody really knows. When did Sophie first get involved? There were some signs like in May of 1942 when she saw Fritz before he went off to the front and before she went to college, she asked him to try and get her a voucher for a duplicating machine. And then it was that summer, Hans and his friend Alex wrote and distributed the first four leaflets. It's generally considered that they did that alone and that Sophie didn't have a part of that. But there she was asking for a duplicating machine and something's going on, right? We also don't know did she confront him? I'm guessing she did. And so I, I did, because my book is historical fiction, you can add a bit to that. So I actually have her holding off because she knows he's going to go to the front because the trimesters are quite short. It's three months, basically, of studying. And then you go off to the front. Or for her, she had to go to an ammunitions factory to work. And so they did those four leaflets. And they were quite damning. I mean, this was already high treason here. One of the first had, every word that comes out of Hitler's mouth is a lie. And just saying that, you're setting yourself up for getting killed. Another line, isn't it true that every honest German is ashamed of his government? I mean, it just gives you chills that they would say these things. It was very courageous and very, you know, almost foolhardy, but but good. Good. Somebody, Somebody is saying something, finally. 
they're very tactical and clever. They realize we're very small, but we can make it look like we are huge. They made thousands of these leaflets and passed them out all over the place with the idea that we're going to pretend like we're this huge organization and make them think that there are a lot of people against you and you guys are going to have to give in to us. And but it was really, you know, like the six of them in, in their little flat, you know, making these leaflets. When Sophie's two brothers are sent to the front in Poland, they see firsthand the Warsaw Ghetto. Mm. They don't see the concentration camps, but they know they are there. They're hearing all of these rumors. They're seeing just the reality of the ghetto. And mm. it it deeply affects them. And that's the point when they finally say, all right, it's not enough just to print leaflets. We have to start an actual revolt. These last leaflets that they made together were, they were appealing not just to like the intellect of the university community, but to the morals of the German people. It seems that once Sophie Scholl and her siblings finally see mm. the Nazi regime for what it is, mm. they can't unsee they can't it. Unsee it. Mm. And they feel strongly compelled to make up for their own former complicity, that oh. they were aiding this regime. The bad guys, and now yeah. they have to stop it. Mm. A few years ago, I encountered an article that blew my mind about the color blue. Oh, yeah. Do you remember this? That blue did not exist. Yeah. I, but in ancient Greece, it didn't exist. Yeah, that we can't find records of blue yeah. before the 1300s. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's blue. It's so awesome. Of course, blue existed, but there just aren't. There aren't mentions of the color that the sea or the sky are gray or red. Right. Homer describes the sea as wine dark. Yeah, wine dark. Yeah. Yeah, there are cultures still now that don't have a word for blue, and they yeah. can't see they blue. They don't if see you blue. Give them yeah, a, exactly. These are green and these are blue. Which ones are blue? They're all green. Yeah, I love that they've also swapped that experiment around. Like one of those same cultures that doesn't see blue. They couldn't right. pick out a blue block among a bunch of green ones. They have lots and lots of colors for green right. that we don't have. And so they flip the experiment around. They give us a whole bunch of what appear to be just green blocks and say, right. which one of these is different? And we're like, there's yeah. no difference. But those who can't see blue, they look at those green blocks and they go, that one, obviously, this one right here is clearly not green. Yeah. And they can see it clear as day, and we can't at all. So right. much of the way our brains are wired and what we do and don't see is just based on what we're taught and what has given names. It's really amazing. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the literalness of it is shocking. Yeah. yeah. You know, you can't unsee once you've seen it. That once you mm. have gotten the word blue. Yeah. You see, blue, you see blue and you'll never not <laughs> see blue again. And that once you have seen, oh, this system is sexist, you can never not yeah. see it again. It's, yeah. You're always going to notice it, but you yep. you literally couldn't you see, it see it yep. until you had the word for it. Yeah. And so after they went to the front and luckily they all survived that. In the meantime, their father had been arrested. He was in prison for four months because he, he called Hitler a... Uh, 
Gorge of God, which was just a, an insult he used from time to time, but his secretary overheard him, and that's what life was like in the Third Reich. So all of that went on. They came back. Zofi took over the, the group's finances, so she went buying the paper, the envelopes, the stamps, and that was in itself very dangerous because you could only buy a little bit at each time, and it, she had to go all around the city looking for bits of those things. When leaflets were ready, she went and brought them around the city and left them in, on cars and in phone booths. She took trips, carrying them suitcases and bags full of these leaflets to other cities, bringing them to either mail from there or to give to friends to pass out to other people. She writes often about how the idea that women would not do these things meant that she could pass unobtrusively through searches, that she can carry a suitcase full of thousands of anti-Nazi flyers and not get stopped, whereas any of her brothers or friends would have absolutely been stopped and searched. I love all those kinds of narratives in world history where women exploit sexism to get away with all (laughs) kinds of stuff. It's awesome. Let's pause for just a second to thank our sponsor, Girls Can Crate. It's Women's History Month, and many people are looking for a way to encourage their kids to learn more about the amazing women who have made the world a better place. We can't think of a better way to do that than with a subscription to Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. Every crate features an inspiring woman and her own unique story of why she's awesome, a 28-page activity book, plus everything you would need to complete two or three hands-on STEAM activities and more. And for our listeners, if you go to girlscancrate.com, C-R-A-T-E dot com, and use the code HERNAME, all caps, you'll get 20% off your first month's crate on any subscription. Check them out now at girlscancrate, C-R-A-T-E dot com. And when you order, make sure you use the coupon code HERNAME, all caps, so that they know we sent you. Hans and Sophie decided that they were going to go bring in broad daylight, thousands of them, to their university and pass them around outside of the lecture halls while classes were in session. And so this was on February 18th, 1943. So just a couple of weeks after the Stalingrad defeat, they were hoping that their fellow students were ready to help with a revolt. And so the two of them carried a suitcase and a briefcase full of leaflets to the university and they passed them all around the lecture halls and they were almost ready to go. (laughs) Actually, they came out and came back in because they still had some left. They put the last ones out and then up at at the top on the balustrade of the atrium, Sophie just couldn't help herself. (laughs) And there was this stack of of the papers and the beautiful open atrium below and she sent them flying. She just couldn't resist. And Sophie throws them Uh, over the edge of the balcony. And they come raining down through the air to the floor of the atrium below. Pretty much that was it. They were brought in for questioning and the Gestapo inspector who had been on their trail these last few weeks, he interrogated Sophie and another... Inspector interrogated Hans. They are interrogated for several days. At the beginning, they are denying everything. We know nothing about it. We were just standing there. 
Why do I have an empty suitcase? Because I was bringing some laundry to be done. They're trying as hard as they can to protect their friends. But mm. once it becomes obvious that they are involved, they proudly own it. Yeah. Yes. Yes, we were. We believe this is wrong and we were standing up for what we believe in. Mm. The government is terrified. They honestly believe that this is a massive resistance movement wow. all across the country that obviously they have a huge network and they want names. This is six young people in an apartment. Wow. So on the 22nd, they had the trial. They brought in this terrible guy, Roland Freisler. He was this typical Nazi judge and he sentenced them to death, the three of them, because at that point, so they had Hans and Sophie and they did also bring in Christoph right away. And so once they've confessed, things move shockingly quickly. Mm. They sign a confession. The next morning, they have a trial. Whew. They are convicted of treason at 12.45 in the afternoon. They file an appeal for clemency. And that appeal is denied at 4 p.m. Mm. And at 5 p.m., they are beheaded. Whoa. Really? By guillotine. Wow. <sighs> the time between the conviction and the execution is four hours. Oh, that is incredible. Was it a public execution or just like quietly in a prison? It was not a public execution, but it was a very public story. Mm. They are making an example of these right. students. Her, her sister, actually, uh, Elizabeth, she read about it in the paper. Oh. She was not, she wasn't at home. The parents got to come down and they, they got to spend some time with, with Sophie and Hans, like about a half an hour after the trial, before the execution. But her sister was away at a job and she read about it in the newspaper the next day. Sophie's sister quoted her as saying, this is going to make waves. Mm. She truly believed that their execution would be the trigger that would mm. prompt a massive resistance and student revolt mm. and end the war. That didn't happen. No. Unfortunately, it seems that the government's plan of terrorizing mm -hmm. potential resistance workers by beheading college students worked. There's a huge archive of trial transcripts and government documents and copies of the leaflets and everything. But the thing that really struck me was the list of Sophie Scholl's personal effects that were meticulously noted down for returning to her parents wow. after her execution. Scarf, bra, coat, chocolates, oh. apple, pastries. What? Two packs of cigarettes. Oh my gosh. I mean, I, that brought me to tears. Something about the chocolates brought me to tears. Yeah. That she, she had a snack just an, in her pocket apple. for later. She was... <sighs> She was just going to drop off pamphlets and then go about her life. 
Yeah. Wow. And instead, she is going to be beheaded in six hours. <sighs> and so that that really affected me. I think those things that make you suddenly realize these were real people. This was yeah. a real girl mm. with chocolates in her pocket uh, and an apple. But it gets worse. Oh, no. The cookies mm. were cookies that her mother made for her and brought to her oh, my at gosh. that final meeting. And didn't realize that they were gonna going get to return returned. them to her mother, that her mom oh. gets these cookies back. It was one of the things that destroyed me more than anything else. She said yes for her mom, you know, she's putting on a bright face. She didn't cry in front of them. When she got out in the hall, she cried. Not for herself, but for them. It just gutted me. Yeah. I can hardly imagine. They must have been, like, so conflicted, proud, but devastated. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything. Everything. And, and frankly, furious because what a stupid thing to do <laughs> why did you throw them you could have gotten away yeah. you could have left them and walked i mean i'm furious with her yeah i get it i see the i mean what a dramatic just beautiful feeling gesture. it in the moment yeah but oh the the just staggering yeah tragic stupidity <sighs> of it and you know they would have caught him eventually Right. I mean, they were on their track and they probably would, you know, it was probably a matter of a few more weeks. Yeah. It's hard to But know. if it had worked, right? I mean, yeah. it, the government absolutely seems to have believed that this was on the verge yeah, of potential. happening. Yeah. And Sophie Scholl was 100% convinced that this was going to happen. Yeah. yeah I, I, I think we can't know, you know, ifs. if there had been that spark, one, one more day Maybe. might have been what was needed <laughs> only a few days before she was arrested Sophie Scholl was talking to a friend about her resistance work and her feeling of responsibility to change things she said I for one do not want to be guilty going forward wow <laughs> that's an amazing self-awareness for yeah. a 21 year old to look at your past, look at the choices that you made, hmm. change and commit to a different way. Yeah. I think the most important part of this story is the part that makes people uncomfortable that she was pro Hitler, that she was a supporter of mm -hmm. the Nazis. They were 100% in. And then they were 100% out. <laughs> and then slowly, through just learning new information, not through a dramatic personal experience, yeah. that through paying attention and evaluating what was happening, changed their mind. Mm -hmm. And set out to undo the wrong that they believed they had done. Yeah. That's impressive to me. Me too. I want those people. I want the people who voted that way 10 years ago 
Yes, I did, and I've changed my mind. <laughs> I've figured some stuff out along the way. <laughs> so, in, in all honesty, we can't really say that Sophie Scholl and the White Rose accomplished very much in terms of resistance to the Nazis. They didn't really have maybe any impact on the war at all. Wow, wow good point. So why are we still talking about her? Why, why is she important? Yeah. Do we just like sad stories? Well, I guess with the benefit of hindsight, we can see somebody who, had they achieved their goal, things might have turned out quite a bit different. Exactly. I think that is really critical. You know, in the in the post-war years in Germany, talking about this whole experience was still quite difficult, as one yeah. might imagine. Right. But over the years, Germany really became a model of how to change your mind as a nation <laughs> um, and be very wrong in public and ah. learn from it. And the story of the White Rose is a large part of why that has happened. When Germans really started to pay attention to the story of Sophie Scholl and the White Rose, you know, here's evidence that there were some Nazis who realized that this was wrong mm-hmm. and changed and fought mm-hmm. for what they believed was right. So their story now is a really important narrative for the importance of resistance, of moral courage, of educating yourself in the face of propaganda, and of doing something, even if it might be fruitless. So in a way, the legacy of the White Rose is less about what they did and more about what they're doing. Mm. They're still inspiring German children. Schools are named after them. The story of their courage and resistance is shaping the narrative of the country and the world in the same way that those anti-Nazi narratives shaped a whole generation of U.S. children. Yeah. The story of Sophie Scholl is probably infinitely more important than anything that Sophie Scholl did in her lifetime. Yeah, and that's a, this is a prime example of how history can be so powerful. We pick and choose which stories to tell from the past. Mm. And in Germany today, they're looking back at their past and going, look, here's Sophie Scholl. She is who we want to be moving forward. And the way that they tell the story of their past affects who they become in the future. Yeah. You know, one of their leaflets said, we are your bad conscience. The White Rose will not leave you in peace. And those words are true now. They're still functioning now as the conscience of a nation and they're apparently doing that job very well yeah and that's something that carries on it's been through history this way and it continues today is that we need to be there saying no stop being terrible to other humans (laughs) i mean it shouldn't be that hard it shouldn't be that simple sophie Scholl's last words were recorded by her prison cellmate how can we expect righteousness to prevail when there is hardly anyone willing to give himself up individually to a righteous cause. Such a fine, sunny day, and I have to go. But what does my death matter if through us thousands of people are awakened and stirred to action?
Huge thanks to Kip Wilson and to this episode's sponsors, Chantel Oliver and Catherine McKay. If you would like to be a sponsor, visit our website at whatshernamepodcast.com and click donate to visit our Patreon page and see all of our great prizes and rewards, including your own shout out in a future episode. If you'd like to learn more about Sophie Scholl, check out our website at whatshernamepodcast.com for photos, links, and more. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. Music for this episode was provided by Amanda Setlick-Wilson and Jeff Kuno. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson, and this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle. This episode is sponsored by The Process, a creative docuseries. How do you capture the power of creativity? In a new video docuseries, filmmaker Daniel Foster Smith interviews artists, makers, and other creatives to understand how they move through the artistic process and overcome creative blocks. Go to danielfostersmith.com and start streaming episodes today.